you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 16. As we turn to God's word, let's turn to him and ask for his help. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have, in a time past, opened our eyes to see the truth of your word. You've opened our ears to hear you speak. But, oh, Father, we sometimes lose sight and lose hearing. So would you be pleased, right here, right now, to open fully our ears to hear your truth, open fully our eyes to see your truth and behold your glory. Help us, Father, through your word and by your spirit to see Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. It's hard to believe that our mini-series has come to a conclusion, uh, three weeks on three surprising conversions. Uh, Unexpected? No. We know the word goes out and the word of God and the spirit of God change people's lives, bring them from death to life. Uh, Not unexpected, but surprising. Yes, indeed, surprising. Why? Look who we've seen in Acts 16, a businesswoman, Lydia, a slave girl with no name, a civil servant, a jailer, we'll see today. Again, these are the very opposite of what a Jewish male like Paul would have been or would have wanted to be. As I've been saying, every Jewish head of household would rise early in the morning and thank God. Now, a few years ago, we, um, we had a sermon, I think, around Thanksgiving, a, a prayer of Thanksgiving that God hates. God, I thank you that I'm not like this or I'm not like that. But a Jewish head of household would say, God, I thank you that I've not been born a Gentile, that I've not been born a woman, and that I've not been born a slave. Interesting prayer. Prayer reveals, as what we've been saying, what I've been saying, it reveals what's inside. Are we posing? Are we pretending? Or are we praising God and pleading before him for his grace? By the end of Acts 16 today, we will see that all three kinds of people, a Gentile, a woman, and a slave, all three were converted and were now united with Paul as brothers and sisters in faith. They were the charter members of the church in Philippi. And Paul addresses that church, of course, in the beginning of his letter to the saints, to the saints. And since we're looking at three conversions, let's remind ourselves about conversion. The Bible gives many images, many pictures. It's like a multifaceted diamond. You can't just capture it from one angle. You see its beauty and glory from various angles. And and, and we can't go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. As wonderful and outstanding as it is, we can't go and, and ask and answer the question, what is conversion? And so I hope that booklet, What is True Conversion, is helpful to you. Because in it, the author brings together the triune God, that conversion is being called by the Holy Spirit, embracing Jesus Christ and recognizing, recognizing that you are loved by God the Father. 
Think about it. Being called by the Holy Spirit, it's not you. It's not your work. It's embracing not a formula, not a list of rules and regulations, but embracing a person. And it's living like you've been loved, that you are loved by a gracious, kind, merciful, good father. He comes up with a a simple definition of conversion, embracing Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. And it sounds a whole lot like the answer to what is effectual calling. Well, for the past two weeks, we've seen the conversion of a businesswoman and a slave girl. Here in Acts 16, it's a major turning point in Acts. It's an epoch-making development. The gospel, as we've been saying, leaves, as it were, the Middle East, leaves Palestine. It's working its way through Asia, and now it's into Europe. We saw in the early verses of Acts 16 that Paul gains a new worker on this second missionary journey, Timothy. He's given a new vision to go over to Macedonia. And he's given the joy and privilege of meeting a new woman. Not new because he had never met her, but new because the Lord had opened her heart to receive and believe the gospel. That mysterious work of the word and the spirit, bringing together the only explanation possible that salvation is of the Lord. Last week we saw the slave girl and we made note of the fact that you're not going to get the full picture of conversion by by what you see in her case. But we did see a picture of the human condition, her misery. We saw a picture of the divine intervention, Paul in the name of Jesus casting out the demon that had taken up residence, the, the evil spirit in her life. And then we also saw a picture of the cost of conversion, not to the convert, but the cost of conversion to those the Lord is using to proclaim his word. We saw that it resulted in beatings and being thrown in jail. Well, today we're going to see a civil servant a low to mid-level government official, probably a retired army veteran, will see him come alive. Now, I want to begin by going back, not to the first century, but just a few years ago, back to May 2014, to listen in on a commencement address given at the University of Texas at Austin, given by retired Navy Admiral William McRaven. And this speech was later expanded into a book entitled Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your Life and Maybe the World. And those 10 things that he presents in the the graduation address and is expanded in the book, they range from start your day with a task completed to life's not fair, drive on, to give people hope and never ever quit. Well, here's an excerpt from that speech. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the mudflats. The mudflats are areas between San Diego and Tijuana, where the the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs, 
a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. Editorial comment. He's speaking about a basic underwater demolition school, SEAL training at Coronado, uh, California. Most of you all have heard of Navy SEALs and Admiral McRaven uh, was the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Force uh, before his retirement. So here he continues. It's on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold mud, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then, one voice began to echo through the night, one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. We knew that if one man could rise above the misery, then others could as well. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted. And somehow, the mud seemed a little warmer, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, for example, Washington, Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Well, today, we will see that there is one person who indeed does change the world. By giving all kinds of people sure and certain hope, people who are born again to a living hope, as Peter writes. So we're going to unpack and explore the story of the conversion of the jailer by focusing on the three quotes that Paul, excuse me, that Luke chose to include in this account, verses 28, 31, and 37. Now, these short speeches of Paul show his care and concern for, one, physical life, two, spiritual life, and three, the church. I want us to hear the entire passage read now, and then we'll explore each of those areas. So Paul and Silas, remember, are in the inner part of the jail. Their feet are in stocks to to prevent uh, an escape. After all, they had just been the bearers, as it were, of a miracle in the deliverance of uh, the slave girl from um, oppression. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So let's take a look now at Paul's care and concern for physical life, for human life, uh, verses 25 through 29. And You can sum it up in verse 28, do not harm. What's the scene? Remember, they're in jail. They're in jail because of economics. They're in jail because the owners of the slave girl realized their source of income had dried up. They were responsible. They stirred up the people, the crowd, the authorities, and sooner rather than later, they're in jail. They've been beaten They're bruised and bleeding. They're immobilized by stocks. And yet, their hearts are not immobilized. Their hearts are moving. They have a reason to pray and a reason to sing. They they are, as it were, up to their neck in mud. And they're singing. And as they're singing, as we heard earlier from the graduation address, the The wind doesn't seem to be as bad, the air doesn't seem to be as cold, and the dawn is closer as they sing. And in in adversity, we, we need to sink the roots of our joy more deeply into the Lord himself rather than just relying on whether or not the surface circumstances are good. Remember Paul's letter to the church in, in, in Philippi. Remember, rejoice in the Lord always. Guess what? Paul is preaching 
or he's, he's practicing what he's preaching. He's practicing what he's teaching. He's learned to be content in all situations. That's why you can read Philippians and not only believe it's true because it's God's word. You, you can believe it because you see it in, in Acts, the historical record. That's what Paul and Silas were doing. And we heard that suddenly there was a great earthquake. Here the Lord is announcing his sovereign saving presence through a strong earthquake like he did at Sinai in Exodus, at Calvary in Matthew, and earlier in the Jerusalem church in Acts 4 when at the prayer meeting it was shaken. Now what's the response to this unexpected earthquake? What's the effect of this earthquake? Well, what's the response of Paul and Silas? Well, remember the Old Testament reading. They're good, right? Whether they live or die. Why? Because Paul would say later, I'm the Lord's. So, so they're good whether there's an earthquake that releases them or not. God can certainly, and he may indeed release them, but they're not, they're not wedded to that. They're praising God. They're, they're praying. They're singing. Well, what's the response of the jailer? Well, he was asleep. He, he woke up and he assumed, of course, that when he saw the, the doors flung open and the, the chains kind of broken, he, he assumed that, of course, what would prisoners do? They would run. They would leave. They'd see it's their lucky break, as it were. But he realized there was only one thing he could do. Take his own life. He was a man of duty. A man of at least honor. And he knew the penalty for a Roman soldier to, to leave his post was death. That's why you didn't have a lot of Roman soldiers leave their post. And for a jailer to lose his prisoners, he knew the deal. It was going to cost him his life. So why bother the authorities with trouble, let me take my own life. But, but he heard the words of Paul. In verse 28, do not harm yourself. And it says, Luke says, he cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. He comes trembling. He comes terrified at this experience of divine power and the words of Paul and he falls at their feet and he asks a question. He asks a question. See, these events bring the jailer to ask a question, a question that in more ways than one is a matter of life and death. So what does he ask? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A lot of commentators are wrestling over this. Is it physical salvation? Is it spiritual salvation? Like what is going on? Probably his immediate thing was, how, how do I get saved from the judgment that's going to come down on me for what has happened in the jail? But why did he ask? Had he heard their preaching in Philippi? Had he... Had he heard the, the slave girl's bizarre advertisement that these men are servants of the Most High God and they're telling you the way of salvation? We don't know exactly, but he asked the question. 
And for those of you with us in our series in Mark, remember the, the, the most important question that you and I can be asked is the question that Jesus asked, right? Who do you say that I am, right? Because fundamentally, how you respond to Jesus orients the rest of your life. It's, it's your destiny based on who you say Jesus is. That's the question you are asked. But I want to argue now that the most important question you yourself that I can ask is this. What must I do to be saved? It's an inescapable, unavoidable question. And it may not be asked out loud, but every human being, because they are suppressing the truth of God and it's not been eliminated, they're wondering, how can I get out of the condition I'm in? How can I find a better life, a better way? How can, what must I do to be saved? It reminds us of the question that the crowds asked Jesus that we find in John 6. They the crowd said to Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Now, the earthquake is not for Paul and Silas to escape. Rob must have read the notes here. It wasn't for Paul and Silas to escape. No, the earthquake was there so that the jailer could escape. He was in prison. The, the, the jailer was himself in jail, the prison of, of sin and misery and death. And so we see that Paul cares not only for his physical life. He doesn't just have concern with do no harm to yourself, but Paul, as we will see, cares for his spiritual life as well, and even more importantly. We move into verses 30 through 34, Paul's care and concern for spiritual life. Once again, the question, what must I do to be saved. Now, what did he mean by saved? Again, it's hard to know precisely, but Paul and Silas answered in terms of a, contra, a, a comprehensive salvation because when they say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it's salvation from sin, from guilt, from condemnation, from alienation, and ultimately from physical death and spiritual death. Here is response to the gospel. Remember in Jesus' public ministry, we read in Mark 1, 14 and 15, Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The gospel is declared and yet there's a demand. Remember, repent and believe in the gospel is the demand. It's followed by, or it, it follows the, the declaration. The God, 
the kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And, and how do you respond to news? Since the gospel is fundamentally good news, how do you and I respond to news? How, how does, how, what do Paul and Silas want the jailer to do? How do you respond to news? You either believe it or you don't believe it. The, you believe the news is either true or you believe the news is not true. Here's a summary of the doctrine of salvation. Believe. Believe. Remember just a moment ago from John 6, 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. That what? That you believe in him who he has sent. In other words, Jesus says the work of this, uh, the work that God requires is this, you believe in me. You believe in me. So how does he respond to the question or the answer he's given? Believe, believe in the Lord Jesus. How does he respond? Well, what we see is a changed and changing life. Just like Lydia he begins to offer immediate hospitality following his conversion. He, he's washed, he washes their wounds and, and he welcomes them into his home. There's an immediate response to being converted. He's serving them by washing their wounds. He's welcoming them. They will eat together. And the early church father, John Chrysostom said this, that the washing here was reciprocal, quote, he washed them and was washed. Those he washed from their stripes himself was washed from his sins. He was baptized. Before that, you, you, you see um, that he's being taught the word. They spoke the word of the Lord. There's that initial one word, believe, but it's followed up by Jesus' great commission, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And notice how this section ends. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the man that earlier, what? Was ready to take his own life. Despair, discouragement, depression. And now... He's rejoicing? Of course, joy is one of the fruits of faith. Joy is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. His terror of disgrace and death was transformed into exultant joy because of his newfound faith. So the earthquake shook the jail, shook the region, right? Philippi in Macedonia. But you know what else is going on? The wonder of grace shakes the jailer's life and world and it melts his hardened heart. They're, they're feasting. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before him. My friends, here is the outward expression of the inward joy. 
the welcome. The welcome. You know, J.I. Packer, uh, the late English-turned-Canadian um, theologian, talked about what joy is and what joy isn't. And he made the point that, you know, joy is not based on personality. And it's not based on facial expression. He, he told his readers that he himself had a, an English coffee pot face, not an uh, English teapot face. But for the believer, for the person who's been converted, there is joy. There cannot but be joy. Why? I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead, now I'm alive. If that doesn't bring about joy in our lives, what will? What will? So ask yourself, is there joy in your life? I mean, for Paul and Silas, there's joy in the midst of being in prison. Why? Because it's not determined by circumstances. But oh, for Paul and Silas, their circumstance was changed earlier, wasn't it? They were brought to faith in Jesus. So ask yourself and ask your spouse, ask your children, ask your parents, can you see joy in my life? And if not, ask yourself, why not? Now the story could have ended there, but Luke continues. And why does he include verses 35 through 40? Um, what does this mean and why are these verses important? Um, they're important because they make it known that Paul cares not just for physical life, not just for spiritual life. He cares for the church that he will leave behind. So let's take a look finally at verses 35 through 40. Paul's care and concern for the church. Now, what we see in these verses is an attempt to close the case quietly by the magistrates, by the officials. Just, hey, they've served their time in prison. Let's have them just exit our community and be done with it. And yet, Paul invokes his rights as a Roman citizen now. Why he didn't do that earlier, we don't know. Was he not given the opportunity or did he just choose that now... Earlier was not the time, but here he's told to, to, that you're free. Come out, go in peace. And we pick up in verse 37, but Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Most of you have heard of the sit-ins that occurred during the American Civil Rights Movement, right? Where during a time of segregation, African Americans were at restaurants and they refused to leave. And they staged what was known as a sit-in. And here, as some people have recognized, Paul stages the first sit-in. No, I'm not leaving until you do certain things. He, he refuses to move until the authorities come in and basically apologize. He wanted to compel the authorities to recognize their mistake and their error and to do the right thing. Now, this demand for a public face-to-face -face apology was not motivated by some kind of vengeful eye-for-eye -eye lust, nor was it, hey, you embarrassed me and I'm going to embarrass you. It's none of that. Paul is determined to set the record straight. 
You see, because even though Christians um, confessed that Jesus is Lord, as we sang earlier, their faith was neither disruptive of Roman social order nor treasonous toward its government. Paul wanted an official walking out of the city. Now, in Luke's narrative, we see that the, it's actually the opponents of the gospel that, that disturb the peace and the well-being of the community. One commentator says this, We must adorn the reputation of the gospel through peaceable neighborliness and honor toward the leaders and institutions established by God to maintain order. Isn't it interesting? Paul is just reminding the authorities to do their job correctly, rightly. Because what we see here is Paul's care and concern for the church he will leave behind. Because he, know he knows that church in Philippi is going to have to be in a society that's ruled by the Romans. And he wants to leave the church in the best possible position to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive and to grow. Because you see, Paul knows that Christians are people of truth and integrity. Christians cannot but witness to the world. Now we know we might suffer for doing good. We might suffer for standing up for truth. But Peter warns us in his letter, it's bad when you suffer for being stupid. And it's bad when you suffer for doing evil. So imagine the scene. The public in Philippi sees Paul and others being men of truth and men of integrity. Men who could say sky is blue because it's blue and down is down because it's down. And when Christians say the sky is a different color and when Christians say uh, actually that's down and that's up, the watching world goes, why on earth would I want to hear anything they say? They can't even... They can't even speak to reality. And so Paul is trying to leave behind a church that will be recognized and well-received by the civil government, by the civil society. Why? Because just as Jesus went about doing good, so also will his people, the church. Ask yourself, what do my unbelieving neighbors think of me? What do our unbelieving neighbors think of the church? Now, to be sure, until God opens their eyes, they will think that the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, is foolishness. You and I can't change that. The Lord has to change their hearts. But oh, my friends, let's not put stumbling blocks before them. Let's call up, up, and down, down, sky blue, you know, snow white, And notice that they do get released. They get an apology. They're asked to leave the city. They do. On the way out, they, they visit Lydia. The church is probably meeting in her home. And, and, and they see the brothers and they encourage them. And then they depart. Here are the three speeches summarized. Do no harm to yourself. In other words, 
We should be a blessing to the world around us, to the unbelieving world around us. Don't harm yourself. Let's help take care of you physically. And the next speech is this, believe in Jesus. You know, our food pantry that's going to get established may just give us a hearing, right? A hearing for the gospel. Do no harm, do good, believe in Jesus. And finally, the speech is, hey, magistrates, hey, civil government, I want you to apologize for your error. It'll make everything go much better in the days to come. Well, as we wrap up, I want us to think about camera lenses one more time like we did last week. Let's think wide-angle lens, the universal appeal and unifying power of the gospel. The universal appeal and the unifying power of the gospel. All three converts we've seen were worlds apart, nationality, race, uh, socially, economically. You couldn't have imagined more different a wealthy businesswoman who was a God-fearer, a possessed slave girl who, who was not even human, as it were, and this mid-level civil servant, this, this jailer, worlds apart, and yet they were all changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. Imagine that. The same gospel changes them and they're brought into the same church. John Stott writes this, we too who live in an era of social disintegration need to exhibit the unifying power of the gospel. Oh my friends, that's a vision for this church to show that black and white and rich and poor and young and old and Republican and Democrat and independent and whatever else identifies you in the world can be together one in Christ. Are you confident enough in the gospel that that can happen? Are you? I am, and I hope you are because I've said it before, it's what D.A. Carson says this, the church is made up of natural enemies and what binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents and common jobs or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. So that's the wide-angle lens, the universal appeal, and the unifying power of the gospel. And finally, let's see things through the zoom lens, the power of the gospel in your own life. My friends, can you sing in the midst of all circumstances? Can you rejoice in the Lord always? Is there joy in your life? And if there's not joy in your life, you need to ask the question, why not? Why not? I know if you're like me, you think that the outward circumstances need to change for joy, right? But in the words of my favorite Kentucky singer-songwriter, we hear this, what kind of joy can give the prisoner his song? 
The joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. My friends, if you in your inner being are forgiven and free, there's joy no matter the circumstances. You see, through our receiving of the gift of faith in Jesus Christ, we all have a living hope, a sure and certain hope that not only changes our world, but as we declare the gospel and as we demonstrate its life-saving and life-transforming effects, the hope that is found only through faith in Jesus Christ really does change the world. May God be pleased to use all of us individually, as families, as this church to in some small way change the world through the declaration and demonstration of the gospel. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture, these pictures of conversion. We, 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 we thank you for the fact that your work in the lives of your people is so brilliant and, and amazing that it's, it's just hard to express and hard to capture in one image or one picture. And so, Father, we thank you for this helps us to see the, the height and depth and width of our salvation. Oh, Father, we pray that this church would always be a home for all kinds of people who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that belief demonstrated, of course, through repentance. But, oh, Father, may the heart of this church always be the person and work of Jesus and the announcement of the good news of his life, death, and resurrection for his people. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. We rejoice in